Good evening, my darlings, and welcome to Marley's Ghosts. Tonight's story is Deepest Darkest by Christian Macklem. There remain to this day corners of the earth whose secrets should be forever withheld from the peering eyes of man. Yet still we scavenge for those uncharted places, unable to suppress our desire for the unknown. There was a time when I was no different. As a child, I excavated great holes in the yard with the family dog, my first companion searching for buried treasure. I felt a kinship to the archaeologists of my favorite adventure tales. It was the end of summer, 1908. The air was crisp with the scent of turning leaves when I came upon a map lodged in the nook of a fallen tree. In later years, I would realize that the entire episode was, of course, devised by my parents, but to a child's eye, it was a genuine discovery. A pirate's treasure map, stained and burnt around the edges, a dotted line leading to a spot marked with a skull and crossbones. Enlisting my parents as local guides, we set out to follow the path. The journey led us to a small island, reached by ferry and remote stony shore. Near the high tide mark, we located an X formed by two pieces of driftwood. Rocks crackled underfoot as I raced over with my dutiful hound in tow. We scooped away the sand, he with his paws and I with a small garden trowel. But a foot beneath the surface of the trowel grated against something solid. We had unearthed the prize. A wooden chest roughly four by eight inches and filled with what looked to me like treasure. Mostly old coins and stage jewelry. Treasure beyond imagining. My fate was sealed that day. I was an explorer. Years later, I enrolled in the School of Anthropology at Columbia University, New York. The city was pure life. I roamed the boroughs many times late into the night and often straight through until morning. My soles were worn thin by cobbled streets. I envisioned peeling back the foundations and revealing the stratum of antiquity. It was on one such nocturnal wandering that I first met the now infamous... William Kerrigan. I was regarding a particularly rare specimen of 18th century architecture when I heard a voice, deep and direct, without aggression, pulling me out of my solitary reverie. He was a man about my age, clothed in an immaculate charcoal suit and matching overcoat. Moonlight brushed against his top hat, a bold departure from the modern derbies popular at the time. Stately, practically Dickensian, a man out of time. He too appraised the historic building and confided his own passion for the treasures of antiquity. I was reticent. A brief conversation revealed we shared more than just a common interest and that we were, in fact, fellow students at Columbia. I have often wondered if our meeting that night was indeed mere coincidence or if the hand of something greater, something beyond, wove our paths together. William excelled at classical and historical linguistics. 
He tended to dominate lectures with ceaseless queries and interjections that on one occasion forced a professor to exclaim, See here, Kerrigan, let me speak! He was a gravitational force whose pull, for me at least, was inescapable. I dare say the same was true for him. Together we haunted school and city libraries, delving thorough volumes in ancient texts and historical accounts. Summers were spent traveling to any far-flung destination our pocketbooks would allow. The lion's share of financing came from William, whose considerable wealth was somewhat of a mystery. Perhaps some form of inheritance or trust... We shared our dreams of one day adding our own chapters to the canon of exploration. By the time we earned our doctorates, we had transformed ourselves into quite the pair of capable adventurers. Our journey began in earnest several years later when William burst into my study, breathless, wide-eyed, and sweating. I leapt to my feet. He was meant to be on an expedition in the Yucatan, at least a month's journey from New York. He placed a weathered, leather-bound book on my desk and hovered, chest-heaving. <sighs> the leather was soft and blemished with age. Its pages were mottled yellow, fading to burnt umber at the edges and wafting the scent of wet earth. A name was pinned inside the cover. Dr. Herbert Kershaw. It was a name and story I was familiar with. Dr. Kershaw had been a professor emeritus of Yale who vanished on an expedition in the Amazon rainforest years earlier. However, it was not his name that seized me, but the fact that the journal was dated a full year after his disappearance. In this account, Kershaw detailed his discovery of an historical text found in the library and Jesuit mission in Iquitos, Peru a remote city only accessible by river. The artifact he discovered was a diary of a conquistador, a soldier numbered amongst his 207 men following Nan Perez de Casada on his famous hunt for El Dorado, the city of gold, in the year 1540. Fortunately, both documents, Kershaw's and the soldiers, have since been lost, and until such time as they can be recovered, my own recollection will have to suffice. The conquistador's account was a mysterious and tragic tale. Separated from the expedition, he became helplessly lost and with few provisions listed into delirium. He wrote of voices and shapes in the night. At the brink of death, he was confronted by his supposed apparitions, which were in fact no more than a band of aboriginals. Whether out of exhaustion or shock, the soldier fainted. He awoke in a village of considerable size, entirely hidden by the jungle canopy. Cyclopean stone buildings surrounded him, and every inhabitant was adorned with the most brilliant dressings of pure gold. The soldier's account ended abruptly. His final page contained a sketch that Kershaw had thankfully described. Strange symbols encircled a pattern of lines woven like serpents into a figure that gave the impression of some monstrous deity. According to Kershaw, the final page of the soldier's journal was blotted with dark stains that he claimed with confidence were not ink. 
Kershaw's own report concluded with a hand-drawn map of a region in the Amazon. He plotted a trail from Iquitos, judging by the topography, terminating at a remote point deep in the rainforest. I thought back to that treasure of my childhood. Turning to William, I asked, How soon can we leave? His smile was answer enough. We boarded a ship from New York to Peru, rounding the murderous sea of Cape Horn at the southernmost tip of South America. Disembarking in Lima, we continued by land and then by riverboat to Quiquitos along the shores of the mighty Amazon River. Our first endeavor was to locate the derelict Jesuit mission, but we were unsuccessful. Most likely, it had been raised in the intervening years since Kershaw's report. We next set about acquiring supplies for an exhibition of our own and secured the aid of three local guides, Manuel and his two nephews, Andres and Simon. All were able-bodied and seasoned explorers sufficiently versed in English. Manuel arranged the services of a riverboat, captained by a surly man whose nose and cheeks were a red lattice of capillaries earned from habitual intoxication. To my relief, this detestable practice was limited to the evening hours when we were safely anchored. Simon prepared our meals. He entertained William, sharing with him the nature of local cuisine and even allowing him to join as a clumsy but enthusiastic sous-chef. When not engaged with our companions, William reviewed Kershaw's journal and the mysterious symbol. Time was spent with Manuel, reviewing and plotting our course and swapping stories of past expeditions. Andres acted both as first mate and self-proclaimed tour guide, wheeling from port to starboard and back in a chaotic ballet. Never had I experienced anything quite like the Amazon. Reptiles slid and slithered along the muddy banks. Strokes of color flitted amongst the trees, occasionally roosting long enough for Andres to identify them. The shores constricted and the canopy leaned overhead as we progressed, until the time came that we could go no further by river. We bade our captain farewell and watched as his boat pulled away and disappeared. As the engines faded, I had the distinct sensation of stepping into another world, ancient and alive, in which timeless eyes bore witness to our trespass. Humid waves permeated with rot stifled the air from my lungs. Trees wove together and choked out the sky as the path behind sealed with writhing undergrowth. Manuel forged the way with great swings of his machete. Andres and Simon transported the bulk of our supplies. When night came, we all took part in assembling camp. The field tents that had sheltered me on numerous occasions did not elicit their familiar sense of protection here. The shadows were alive. The earth crawled beneath you. Simeon shrieks led nocturnal symphonies, midnight klaxons in the dark. Our guides were unaffected, and I knew I must adjust. We had, after all, only just begun. In the moments before the light seeped away, as we each took to our beds, I spied William. He would stand unflinching, staring ahead, as if assessing some unseen path. Kershaw's journal clutched at his side. Too soon, we were back on our feet. 
I was damp with sweat long before the sun pierced the trees. Humidity and dew soaked every shred of fabric, every inch of skin. Well had us change socks regularly to avoid fungal infection. We pushed on, led by the metronome of Manuel's machete. Threat of death lay in every step, every crack beneath your foot, every brush against your shoulder. Diseased threatened to consume any careless soul, fatal maladies lurking behind the smallest mistake. Gone was the joyous spirit of the river, replaced now with a silent, focused intensity. Progress was slow. Sometimes Manuel allowed William to take over, but relinquished his position with great reluctance. Whenever this happened, our pace quickened and the duration of our rests diminished. Eventually, Andres and Simon implored him to stop to afford some respite from their loads. Following one such interruption, William forcibly took a portion of their baggage and carried it himself. If it wore on him, he did not let it slow his pace. Many times, William would press on into the night. Our world was blackness. Flesh was raked by unseen claws. It had been days since William last allowed Manuel to lead. Embittered voices swelled in the dark as the two men argued in Spanish, and although I could not understand their words, I had no question of their meaning. William insisted we continue, while Manuel demanded we make camp. All occurred in total darkness. Sound was amplified by blindness. I heard Andres and Simon shrug off their packs and set them down. Detrius crackled as they shifted from one foot to the other. One of their palms scuffed thick stubble while a hushed sigh leaked through the other's pursed lips. William and Manuel's argument reached a crescendo. The final words, Manuel's, hung in the air. And like that, I was stranded in darkness without hearing so much as a breath from my companions. I realized for the first time how truly isolated and alone I had become. Finally, Manuel instructed us to start making camp. Heavy footfalls, Williams, faded deeper into the darkness. We fetched our electric torches and assembled our camp in amber pools of light. I did not see William again until morning. I rose to find him pouring through Kershaw's journal. Sweat speckled his brow and dark circles marred his eyes. His pat sat next to him and I wondered if it had even been opened during the night to set up his tent. We ate in silence, packed in silence, and departed in silence. William set off, machete in hand. I had the sense that he was indifferent whether we followed or not. Some invisible boundary had been crossed and there could be no turning back. Then came the storm. Thunder and rain whipped ceaselessly as we continued to forge our way ahead. The air was electric and ripped open as lightning lanced through the sky. We spread the weight of the equipment amongst us, giving relief to Andres and Simon. Manuel was sure-footed and urged us onward. Somewhere ahead, William drove ever deeper into the wild. The earth rose and fell. Rain transformed the slightest of hills into violent cascades that ate away at our footholds. The days were charcoal gray, only a shade brighter than midnight. Existence was reduced to a drowning purgatory. 
the river sticks without a boatman and no far shore in sight. So passed the days, so passed the nights. But time was no longer measured in that way. There was only the next step and the next and the next ever forward. Suddenly, the darkness was cleft by white, ripping heat, a deafening clap. I was on the ground. We all were. I heard the screams before I could even process what happened. There was a splintered tree, twisted like cracked bone, and there, pinned beneath the fallen trunk, Andres writhed in congealing muck. Rivlets of gore seeped from beneath him. Wind carried the scent of iron and awful. Nearby, Simon lay unconscious in Manuel's lap. The rain washed pale red streaks from a wound on his head. Unconscious, Simon was spared his brother's desperate cries. He did not hear him begging for help. He did not hear Andres plead for his life, nor his final choked gasp. By the time Simon could stand, rain pooled in Andres' gaping mouth turned up to the heavens, frozen in final, agonized protest. We removed his wedding band and gave it to Simon to deliver to his family upon our return. Manuel bandaged Simon's head. Night was upon us, but no one wanted to bed down in the face of death. We paid our respects and, with great struggle, coerced Simon to part with his brother's remains. It felt wrong to leave our companion, as if abandoning him to some cruel fate. But the man was dead, and we could do nothing to free his corpse from beneath the tree. We departed, forever condemning Andres to the jungle. We were forced to leave behind a fair share of our supplies as well, having not enough hands to bear the load. Simon was a husk of his former self, as if he might dissolve at the faintest touch. He clutched his brother's ring, fastened it to his necklace. Every so often, Manuel would circle back to where Simon trudged behind us and coerce the despondent man to catch up. William sprouted protests as we waited for Simon to rejoin our ranks. Despite following Manuel's instructions to change socks, I could feel a wet, hot itch begin to spread across my feet. Only the cursed rains would break. I prayed it was not too late to stave off the worst of the symptoms. It could mean my death. Would my companions carry me? How long could they bear the burden? For the time, I thought it best to keep the infection to myself. For now, I could keep pace and that would be enough. The same could not be said for Simon. I had assumed it was the weight of grief that slowed him. But as the days passed, his disposition worsened. When at last the rain ceased, the return of proper daylight revealed his horrid, pale complexion. His eyes clouded and he rocked like a boat with no keel. Manuel watched him closely and I convinced myself that Simon's condition was temporary. But I could not ignore the smell of moldering flesh. He hit the ground with an unhindered thud and rushed to his side. I could feel the heat of his fever. The sense of decay was palpable, even before Manuel pulled back Simon's bandages and revealed the wound. A pustulous, green aberration. Simon pulled erratic breaths and spoke to the sky. We built a litter out of the spare tent. 
Andres no longer had need of it, and took shifts carrying Simon. There was little we could do but wait and hope the infection would not spread. But his blood was poison. He died two days later, under slatted rays of morning sun. It was a shallow grave, but the best we could manage in the twisted bed of roots. Manuel took the necklace with Andre's ring and conducted a service in Spanish. He crossed himself and did the same over Simon's grave. Before long, William spurned us onward. Manuel was little aid from that moment forward, leaving the task of navigation to me. When he spoke, it was only of turning back and conserving what few supplies we had left. The discomfort in my feet was increasing at a slow, steady pace. William's hands had blistered and cracked from wielding the machete, and they seeped pus and blood. He changed bandages regularly, but refused to let Manuel or myself tend to him. During daylight hours, William was a man possessed, but he wilted under the cover of dusk, shaking and withdrawing into his tent. The glow of his torch betrayed sleepless nights that I knew he spent crooked over Kershaw's journal. William's condition had not gone unnoticed. Manuel approached him, imploring once more that we abandon our expedition. William turned on the man with an acid tongue. I watched the machete in his hand and the press of his fingers on the hilt. Manuel's eyes flicked to the blade and he conceded. But in camp that evening, I heard yet another argument. Their voices were not but whispers against the hiss of insects and night dwellers. Using my pack to deafen the noise, I allowed exhaustion to drag me back to sleep. When I woke, Manuel was gone. William rested against a fallen tree, heaving breaths and perspiring, reading Kershaw's journal as always. His cheeks blossomed red against his pale skin. He had no clue where Manuel had gone. My gaze drifted to the machete at his side and the blemishes on his arms. Had they been there before? Manuel's pack was nestled in his tent, untouched. To venture into the jungle without it was madness. William was adamant the man had abandoned us. He shouldered his gear and started off leaving me to decide whether to follow him or wait for Manuel. I did not want to admit how, but I knew Manuel was never going to return. I broke down my tent, donned my pack, and hurried after the fading sound of William's machete. His shoulders sagged, dead, wet skin sloughed from his fingertips. The familiar cadence of his machete slowed with each passing day. The man looked as if he had become host to some vampiric force. He regarded Kershaw's journal night and day, jotting notes in the margins, desecrating the artifact. I was appalled, but said nothing. I dared not. He was infatuated with the soldier's symbol, muttering indecipherable phrases to himself. The day came, as I knew it would, that he finally collapsed. I rushed to his side. His breathing was shallow. As I put my hand to his brow, his eyes flickered. The key! He rasped. He sweat profusely. The bandages around his hands were soaked with blood and dirt. 
I lifted him to his feet and supported him with one arm while wielding the machete. Strained under the weight as his body continued to fail, he leaned against me with his gaze always set on that unseen path ahead. I endured for as long as I could. A couple of days? Perhaps more? I walked on searing coals. Infectious heat spread from my feet through my entire body. My vision was liquid. Ripples of lucidity. Then I was on the ground, and darkness took me. When my eyes opened, the light of a new day fought through the trees. William was gone. Panic forced me to my feet. I bellowed his name and, receiving no response, rushed headlong into the trees, heedless of direction. I ran until my muscles burned like a stoked furnace. And then, suddenly, I was free of the jungle's grasp. I stopped and stared in wonder. I stood at the edge of a vast clearing entirely enshrouded by the jungle. Massive stones lay haphazard, overgrown with contorted vines and weeds. Here and there, peculiar shapes were carved into monolithic blocks that could only be cut by the hand of man. And at the heart of it all stood William Kerrigan. He turned, clutching the journal to his chest. I will never forget the look of frenzy and determination on his face. And something else, deeper, darker than my words can place. That haunting look, however, vanished as something caught his interest among the ruins. As I rushed to catch up, William approached one of the crumbling, moss-covered stones. He tore at it, as if peeling flesh from the rock itself. By the time I arrived, he was wiping away the last of the dirt. The key! William proclaimed. On the stone edifice was a set of archaic characters. He opened Kershaw's journal and leafed the page containing the symbol. Only then did it dawn on me the true nature of his key. The etchings before us indeed matched many of those from the journal entry. William viewed both with a rabid desire, referencing his proliferous notations. I watched as he toiled until he straightened and fixed his gaze on an indistinct path of the forest. Without a word, William ran and disappeared into the trees. I hurried after him, not knowing what nature of madness possessed my friend. I pursued, guided only by the broken branches and plants left in his wake. I noticed a slow but distinct transformation in the flora. The jungle wilted and grew sparse. Life took on the pallor of death, and it became much easier to maneuver as the forest thinned. And then it rose before me gargantuan and breathtaking. The jungle terminated in a sheer wall. Creepers fell like veins around the entrance of a monstrous cavern. William stood at the threshold, an insect against the maw of some gigantic serpent. No sooner had I caught sight of the man than he disappeared into the infernal darkness. I hastened after him. A precipitous path led into the shadows. Steep chasms fell on either side. I shrugged off my pack, retrieved my electric torch, and stepped into the gloom. The heat of the jungle gave way to a stale chill. 
my torch a pinhead in the dark, exposed damp rock and bulbous mineral growths. For the second time on my journey, I had the sensation of crossing into another dimension in which I, nor any person, was ever meant to tread. Deeper and deeper still, strange, wrinkled, rigid pillars took shape around me. Something about their form seemed both familiar and out of place in this subterranean labyrinth. I plucked my way along the treacherous path until reaching a declivity where I was forced to lower myself by hand. The surface of the rock was slick with grime. I lost my footing, plummeting towards the unseen ground. There was no telling how far the fall might be. One careless misstep and an eternal plunge into the unknown. The last thing that I saw was the flare of my torch as it shattered, and then all went black. I regained consciousness and lay motionless. As my vision returned, I was stunned as the cavern took shape around me. I should not have been able to see it at all, yet I was surrounded by light. Blanketing the ground and scaling the walls was a dim phosphorus. Upon closer inspection, I discovered the source of the illumination was an unusual fungus. The growth throbbed a sickly yellow green and sprouted from gnarled columns. The large pillars I had spied earlier. Running my hand along their withered surface, I discovered that they were in fact the bodies of great petrified trees unlike any genus found in the jungle above. They had the appearance of ancient oaks infested with luminous parasites. The alien forest lit the way forward like so many putrid lanterns. I followed the path until the glow receded as the fungi grew less dense. I paused, seeing nothing but black ahead. I could not abandon my friend. William was somewhere in that darkness. And then, a flicker of light in the void. His torch! I ran. The ghost of that light burnt into my vision until my foot struck something soft. I leaned over and fumbled for the object and picked it up. I could just make it out in the fading light of the subterranean grove. It was Kershaw's journal. Why on earth would William have discarded his precious text? I thought I could hear something in the cavern ahead. Delicate, metallic... Then his light returned like a beacon, bright and still. I increased my pace, still holding the journal until I felt something pop beneath my foot. I looked down. A human skull lay on the cave floor, fractured and preserved in an eternal scream. My mind purged of all reason. I fled towards the light of the torch, daring not to look at the ground. I could feel more bones crunching and shattering beneath me. A field of the dead took shape in my mind's eye. I ran and ran, passing over the skeletal remains of dozens, no, hundreds of souls. Who knows how far that crypt spread into the darkness around me. I shuddered to think of the true number of dead carpeting the horrid abyss. My scream filled the chamber. William! Stop, you fool! His voice echoed from the depths. I did not. So relieved was I to hear his voice that the command barely registered.
turn back, he pleaded with an almost inhuman cry. For God's sake, turn back. But it was too late. The floor abruptly steepened, and I sprawled forward. I lost hold of the journal and heard it skitter into the darkness. I tumbled to the foot of the slope, beaten and breathless. William's light lay on the ground nearby, shining against the bare wall. Wiping the soot from my eyes, I stood and retrieved the torch. I shone it into the cavern and froze. A mountainous pile of gold, several stories high, towered towards the roof of the cave. Coins, statues, and countless treasures. There was no question. There lay the remains of the city of gold. A weak voice grated from the golden summit. Run! It was William. I directed the light upwards and found him or at least what remained. He writhed and grasped as the shifting surface of golden coins, a bleeding and tattered wreck of a man. Blood poured from great gouges in his legs and along his back. Bone flickered white beneath curtains of loose flesh. The shadows around him seemed alive, shifting, amorphous and restless, as if he were being consumed by the darkness itself. The blackness throbbed and William was heaved back several feet. Blood spurted from his mouth. William shrieked, Run, damn it! Run while you still can! Leave me! I fled that dreadful place, away from the ethereal monstrosity, away from my friend's mortal's cry. Nightmare visions pursued me as I scrambled, climbed, clawed for the surface. The final echoes of William's voice reverberated off the tunnel walls. My God, don't turn back. Don't let it follow. Those were the last words of Dr. William Kerrigan, save for the screams. Drawing breaths of pure fire, I dragged myself from the blackness until at last the opening of the cave was in sight. I burst free into the embrace of the jungle, unafraid, for naught could compare to the terror of the deep. Days and nights passed as I ran without rest, oblivious to my course. The forest stripped me bare, but I did not stop until coming across a thin serpentine river. The infection in my feet had eviscerated my flesh. The pain was unbearable. I did not make it to the water. I saw whiteness. Felt a rush of air, then wet earth. I heard voices, then drifted down into nothing. It is sheer chance that I was discovered by passing fishermen. They say I babbled in unknown tongues and wept for my friend. Five men had entered the jungle, and only one had returned, naked and covered in blood. I suppose it is no wonder that they did not believe me. I would have welcomed death then. I would welcome it now if it were not for these damned restraints. Only in death will I be freed from this infernal asylum, freed from my haunted memories. They cannot follow me there. Go now, and do not tread in the footsteps of foolish men. Do not seek the secrets of the deep. Let the dark things lie.
Thank you for listening to Marley's Ghosts with me, your ghostess, Deborah Marley. If you would like to reach out to me, you can reach me on social media at Marley's Ghosts on Instagram and Twitter. You can send me an email at Marley's Ghosts Podcasts at gmail.com or my website at Marley's Ghosts Podcasts.com. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, my darlings, sleep well.